Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. kind of walk to and we get to Easter, I want to kind of change the focus a little bit and just have us think about the cross for a second. When we think about the cross and we think about Easter, we think about Good Friday, the moment of Christ's death, what's the emotional response you get when you think of the cross? What, what happens kind of inside of you when you think of the cross, when you consider the cross? You see, because I think in, in our American culture, the cross has become somewhat tame. It's become somewhat sterile. Uh, it's become somewhat numb to us because we're so familiar with it. It's become more of like a, a religious trinket, a kind of uh, ornament, a piece of jewelry. And the impact of the cross has been lost on us a little bit, especially in comparison to those who viewed the cross of Christ in the first century. We're actually there and witnessing what was happening when Christ was crucified. And so I want to ask you, what do you think when you think of the cross? What's your reaction? What's your response? What's the impact it has on you? And what I want to do as we walk through this message and we walk through the scriptures is really show you what I think our response should be. See, because Luke does a great job of depicting for us the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he gives us kind of a different angle than some of the other gospels and maybe some of the portrayals that we're very accustomed to. We think of this, this broken, just beaten, bloodied man on a cross. We think of that kind of violent depiction, which is very appropriate. But Luke kind of zooms out and sees something cosmic happening, sees something that is spiritually significant. So his portrayal is like supercharged spiritually. And he shows us kind of what is happening in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then he shows us several responses to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I want to narrow our focus in on one of those responses. Because I think we can learn from it. We can learn that our response should be like their response. And here's what I think we're going to find. Here's what I think we're going to learn. If you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. This is the big idea for today. So you're going to write down one thing, write this down. The big idea is this. The cross lowers us and lifts us. The cross lowers us and lifts us. The cross humbles us because it shows us the severity of our sin. 
If you have a true view of the cross, you will have a very weighty view of your sin. You won't see sin as like just a mistake or, or a lapse in good judgment. You'll see it with the weightiness of God's wrath on the Son of God on the cross. You'll look at the cross and say, man, I am not who I should be. I am not living up to God's standard. And the consequence for my action is the death of the Son of God. It'll give us a very low view of ourselves. It'll humble us. It'll kind of peel away the sense of moral superiority that we often have about ourselves. But the cross doesn't leave us there. It doesn't just lower us, it lifts us. It also gives us a sense of dignity because Christ was willing to die for us, to pay the cost for us, to atone for our sins, to sacrifice for us. And in that, he sees us as valuable. He's willing to redeem us. So the cross has this kind of twofold of aspect to its reaction or to our response to it. It humbles us and yet it gives us dignity at the same time. It speaks of our need and our worth at the same time. It clears the way for us to see, moves all the clutter of our self-esteem, and says to us that we are in desperate need because inside we're broken. But we're not beyond repair. In fact, our Creator wants to redeem us. He wants to bring us back into fellowship with Him, and He'll pay the cost by sacrificing His Son. And that will scream to us our dignity, our value, and yet it will keep us humble at the same time. And this is the response that Luke records for one of the reactions that happened at the scene of the crucifixion. And the character that he brings together is really a collective character. It's the character of the crowds. For Luke, the crowds are kind of their own separate character. There's what the Romans did. There's what the religious leaders did. And then there's the crowd in Jerusalem. And that's who I want to focus on. So let's jump to Luke chapter 23 and let's see first the portrayal of the crucifixion that Luke gives. He paints a very supernaturally charged moment that Jesus isn't just dying like a criminal. The, the, the cross was a common way of execution in the Roman world. So it wasn't unique to see somebody die on a cross, but something very unique happened when Christ the Son died on the cross. And that unique moment will have a significant impact on those who observed it. So let's first look at kind of the spiritual significance of the cross as Luke records it. This is Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It says this, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Isn't it interesting the details that Luke decides to record? He could have done a lot more work when it comes to just the physical brutality that happened to Jesus. Oftentimes, crucifixion victims would last for hours, even days, in a crucified state. Just beaten, bloodied, publicly humiliated. Crucifixion victims were often crucified naked. 
Now, I know and often in our depictions, right, we make them more PG, and I think that's appropriate, but we have to remember what was happening in the first century world. This was an act to be a warning, if you will. Do not do what they did. Don't step foot with Rome, because here's what will happen. We will publicly humiliate you in your suffering until you die. It was a serious thing. So Luke had given a lot more detail. He could have been a lot more gruesome. But he talks about some other things that are happening that are very peculiar to the death of Jesus Christ. He says that as Christ was crucified, it says it was now about the sixth hour and the sun and the darkness was over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now to us, when we first read it, we're thinking, okay, so it was six o'clock to nine o'clock. That's when it's normally dark. But that's not how they counted time in first century Palestine. The sixth hour would actually be noon. So when the sun is at its kind of highest point, this would be the time of the most sunlight. But now what we have at a very peculiar time is the land is dark. Now some have said, well, okay, it's not something supernatural. It's something natural. It's an eclipse. We, we experience eclipses. That happens. So we can naturally explain this phenomenon. But that doesn't work. Based on the calendar, eclipses don't happen during this season according to the rotation of the earth and where it's positioned with the sun. So that doesn't work. If you want to explain it naturally, you've got to find a different date for the crucifixion because it doesn't work at this season. As it's recorded in secular literature and in the scriptures. So a natural explanation, this is just an eclipse, doesn't work either. Why is Luke pointing this out? Three hours of darkness the crucifixion of Jesus Christ it's not coincidental it's not naturally explained it is a supernatural phenomenon and what does that darkness mean well, it's very similar to what kind of we use that kind of terminology as like we we speak of light and darkness as a sense of hope and a sense of depression a sense of guilt and a sense of kind of uh of reprieve from guilt freedom we use like a, a phrase like, hey friend, there's light at the end of the tunnel. What are we saying? We're not saying, hey, something bad is going to happen. We're, we're saying, hey, something good is around the corner. Now, if we say, man, I'm just in a dark place right now. What are we saying? Hey, bad things are happening right now. It's very similar when it comes to the Hebrew mind. The prophets like Joel and the prophets like Amos of the Old Testament would often highlight darkness as a symbol of God's just judgment. It was a day of dread, if you will, that God's justice was coming. That's what I think is happening here. It's showing that the cross was a moment of God's judgment. Now, judgment on who? I think there's really two possibilities. It can either be judgment on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or it could be judgment on Jerusalem for crucifying the Son of God. Now, I think in reading the text, I think the best way to understand this is this is God's judgment on Jesus Christ, the Son, for the sins of the world. Jesus does talk about that judgment will come to Jerusalem for the part that they played in his crucifixion. And we see that in Luke chapter 23. But when Jesus warns that that judgment will come, it's put in a way that sounds like a future event. It's something that's going to happen later, not going to happen right now. So I think what God is showing in this display of darkness is that his judgment is falling on the Son of God for the sins of the world. So you have this supernaturally charged moment, three hours darkness. And Luke picks up another detail, not probably seen or known by those at Golgotha's Hill. But he said something happened in the temple. 
there was a tearing of a curtain. Okay, why is that a big deal? Right? Did a priest like slip and like ruin the drapes? Like what's, what's going on there? Well, we have to go back to the Old Testament to really understand the significance of this moment. See, when God freed the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery, from Egyptian oppression, he told them, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And I want to dwell with you. I want to hang out with you guys. So he frees them from Egypt, takes them to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And he says, hey, on the way, we're going to carpool. Everybody jump in. Cup holders for everybody. Right? I know what that's like, right? I've got a big family. There are literally like 14 cup holders for a family of six, like how many drinks do you think my kids have? Like double fisting two milks or something, right? But that's, God's like, let's carpool. So God says, hey, I want to I be with you guys. And so God fashions this way that he can be with his people. Because his people still have sin on them and he's a holy God. So he says, here's what I want you to construct. I want you to construct a, a tent, a tabernacle. Now the design of the tabernacle will later become fixed as the temple. Which is what we're talking about here. So the temple really is a a fixed tabernacle or tent. So God says, we're on the move. You can pack it up. You can lay it down. And I will display my presence with you. So God was near his people and with his people, but still separate from them. Because in that tabernacle, there was sacred spaces. And those sacred spaces were separated from the people by curtains. There was a holy place where the priests could go in. Then there was the epicenter of God's display of his presence. And it was called the Holy of Holies. And it was rare to go in there. Only a few could do it and only on certain days. God's presence was most manifested right there. So there's a sense in which God was saying, hey, I'm with you, but I can't be that near you. Because if you experienced my presence like that in the most intimate way, you would die. Because you're a sinful people. You'd be consumed by my holy presence. Well, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, something happens. The curtain is torn. What is this a symbol of? This is a symbol of salvation. And from man's perspective, and the writer of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews chapter 10, is that now we can go in. There's no more curtain. There's no more separation. There's no more interference. There's no more hindrance. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, sins have been atoned for. Which means now we can, and this is what Hebrews says, we can boldly enter in the presence of God. That would be such a foreign term to the Israelite mind when you're talking about the presence of God. You don't go boldly into that presence. Because if you went boldly, arrogantly in there, you die. But because the significant work of Christ the Son on the cross, now we can go in. There's no separation anymore. But there's another angle to this. God's angle. We can almost see the curtain being torn from the inside out. That God's holy presence, his desire to dwell with his people. There was interference there, their sin. But through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, it's like that manifest presence that was in the Holy of Holies. At the death of Jesus Christ, it exploded and was unleashed into the hearts of every single follower of Jesus Christ. It's almost like God, in a sense, caged himself to protect his people. But then at the death of Jesus Christ, he broke the lock. 
He burst the doors and he ripped through the temple. And now he says, now I'm in you. And now I'm in you. And now I'm in you. And you thought my manifest presence was something to be uh, feared? No, now I can embrace you more than anybody in this world ever can. I can dwell inside of you. What a scene, right? Luke does a perfect way of just kind of depicting for us the spiritual significance of this moment. Now again, those at Golgotha's Hill probably didn't hear the curtain tear. Maybe they did. Maybe it was really loud. I don't know. But they saw the darkness. And then they saw the Son of God sing. Look at this. This is what he says in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is quoting a song We call them psalms of the Old Testament. This is what that is. Israel has been singing this psalm for about a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And this isn't the the first time that Jesus has sung in his suffering. He quoted Psalms 22 earlier in the crucifixion moment where he would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he quotes again this song. Now, I don't know about you, but when I suffer, I don't sing. Like when I stub my toe, the words I choose aren't song, church songs, <laughs> right? I choose, maybe you're better than me, you're probably better than me, but I don't just whack, holy, holy, holy. I don't do that, right? I don't sound like the wonderful choir that we got to experience. I don't do that. But there's something again unique and peculiar about this suffering servant. In his agony, in his dying, in his death, he sung songs. What? And that first song that he sung was a song of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was feeling the wrath of God on him. The weight of our sin on him. God was punishing him justly for our sin. But this song is a song of deliverance. In this song, the psalmist is surrounded by his enemies. And it says that he commits his fate to the Lord. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Hey, you'll protect me. Even though my enemies surround me, I could take rest in you. My soul trusts in you. Why is Jesus quoting that? Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I think Jesus is submitting to the plan of suffering. The plan that he knew in eternity past. The plan that he prayed about in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he said, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your be done. The cup that's coming, the wrath of God poured out on him. He was going to drink that whole thing, and he submitted to it. And at this moment, what is he saying? I'm committed to the plan. I submit to the plan. It's my plan. The salvation of mankind is my plan too. So I'll submit to its suffering. And I think what he knows is how the plan ends. I think what Jesus is praying about is his resurrection. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I rest in trust in the plan that we had in eternity past. I will die, but I will rise. And I will do the same thing for everyone who commits their faith to me. They will die to their sin and they will rise to walk in newness of life. What a crazy thing to see in somebody suffering. Can you imagine watching that moment? 
that moment of darkness. Maybe hearing rumors of what just happened at the temple. Maybe that gets to Golgotha's Hill. I don't know. And then seeing the one who's suffering and dying, singing songs of trust to God. Wow. Well, it had an impact. It had an effect in a big way. Look at the responses that are given. This is verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. This is already remarkable. The centurion was probably part of the crucifixion. And now he's praising God and saying that Jesus Christ was innocent or can be translated also as righteous. What in the world is happening? But I want to focus in on the crowd. Look at the crowd's response. So interesting. Verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled. Look at this phrase. For this spectacle. Isn't that an interesting word choice there? They came to be entertained. Because this is what they cried for. The crowds, the people of Israel, that kind of character in Luke's story, they are the ones that pressured the Romans to crucify Jesus. They were calling out for him to die. Look at this. Let's just jump back. Let me, let me just show you the posture of the crowd prior to this moment. This is in Luke chapter 23, verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Matthew tells us what happened was is that the religious leaders stirred up the crowd, stirred up the people. Another player kind of in Luke's story and the gospel writer's story in the crucifixion. Another culprit in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the religious leaders, but then also the crowds. And the crowds cried out a bloodthirsty cry. We want that guy. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And it was that pressure that moved Pilate to just give up and say, fine, have your way. Then this crowd goes to the crucifixion. Let us be entertained. This is what we wanted. They experience the darkness. Maybe they hear about the tearing of the curtain. They see this sufferer sing psalms to God. And look at their response. Verse 48. And the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place. These are all the elements of what has happened in the crucifixion. Everything that Jesus said. That moment of darkness. And when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. What? What? Why? What is that? What's the, the beating of the breast? What does that mean? Why do they clench their fists and slam it against their chest? What does that mean? It's a sign of remorse. It's a sign of guilt. Imagine for a moment if you were on like a, a jury, a grand jury, and, and it's, it's a murder case. Right? And, and the evidence is presented to you very persuasively. And you with the other jurors, you all kind of get together and you decide, yes, this man is guilty. He's deserving of death. You're a part of the sentencing process too. I don't know how the courts work, but you determine that, yes, this man needs to die. 
And I don't believe this is how it happens, but let's just say for the sake of the story, it happens this way, that, that you're there at his execution. Maybe it's lethal injection. Much more tamer death than what Christ experienced. But as you watch through that plexiglass, you watch that man laying out, you, you see the injections happen, you see his chest rise and fall and not rise again. You see the monitors indicate that life has left him. And at that moment, your phone buzzes in your pocket. You pull it out, you look at the screen, and it's a link from a juror that was on the same jury as you. You click that link, and then what it shows is that now DNA evidence has shown that that man actually didn't commit that crime, that somebody else did. Can you imagine the sense of dread, remorse, and guilt? You would leave that room beating your chest. What have I done? What have I done? That man died because I said that he was guilty. I wanted his life. What have I done? This is very much what is happening for this crowd in Jerusalem. They are being lowered by the cross. Because they see that they were the culprits in crucifying the innocent one. The centurion saw it. They saw it. Now we did not cry out for Christ's blood in the first century. But when we look at the cross, we should have a similar response. My sin put him up there. You cannot have, you cannot have a low view of sin if you have a real view of the cross. You can't look at sin and like, well, it's just a lapse in good judgment. Ah, it's just a mistake. No big deal. God won't take it seriously. God won't take it seriously? God crushed his son. How much more serious can he be? How much more severe can the punishment be? The cross screams at us. This is no light matter. Your sins are severe. My sins are severe. They're not things that we could just pass over as light moments. Oh, I just wasn't in my right mind. No, 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 friend. These are acts of rebellion against God. This is cosmic treason. This is turning the, the, the flow of the universe in the wrong direction. This is moving into the current of the cosmos, moving away from the glory of God. It is infidelity. It is rebellion to the cosmic king. It is, it is the ultimate act of treason, and it deserves death. The cross lowers us. I mean, it rips away any sense of moral superiority. When I look at the cross, I cannot leave saying, I am a good man. No, I can't. Because then I'm not seeing sin like God saw sin. But the cross doesn't leave me there. The cross lowers us, but it also lifts us. You know what's remarkable about this crowd? This crowd for 50 days dealt with that guilt, that sense of remorse. But then on the day of Pentecost, actually 53 days, I guess, after the death of Christ, but 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, this crowd comes up again in Luke's account in Acts chapter 2. Look at this. Let me show you this. In Acts chapter 2, the same crowd that cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ who were lowered when they saw their crime of killing the Son of God. Who went away beating their chests in remorse. They're addressed again. And this is where the cross lifts them up. 
Look at this. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Here's the sermon in Jerusalem. Men of Israel, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Look at this phrase. You crucified. Who crucified the Son of God? You did. You talk about an awkward conversation. Can you imagine the moment that Peter is having right here? I mean, he is not a very persuasive salesman, is he? God wants your best life now. No, what does he say? You did it. You did it. Man, now that's a church service right there. You did it. You crucified him. You killed him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. Do you see how he doesn't allow them to get away with it? He doesn't. He doesn't go like, hey, man, it was the religious leaders. They're the ones that got you all riled up, got you excited, brought in this, you know, the religious cheerleaders. Sis, boom, ba, rah, rah. Can I get a crucifixion, right? Got you all riled up. No. He doesn't say, well, it was the Romans, it was Pilate. He's the one who had the real authority to crucify Jesus. He doesn't do that. He doesn't let him play the blame game. What does he say? You did it. You did it. You crucified this one. Wow. I mean, I can't imagine the silence in that room or in that area. They are lowered. But then they are lifted up. Look at their response. I love this. Like every time I read this. It's just so sweet to me. Look at this crowd. Jump to verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. I mean, they've been grieving for over 50 days. They were cut to the heart. And Peter said, or, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, this is what they say, brothers, what shall we do? Oh, man. Yeah, I was... I was talking with our pastoral staff team and we're just talking about moments where we have to and it's not our favorite thing to do but there are moments as pastors and shepherds of God's people the people that God brings to sunrise those who've committed their life to Jesus Christ who would call themselves followers of Jesus Christ it's our job as pastors to handle the sin that's in their life now we don't do that because we're perfect we're not perfect just come to a staff meeting that'll be very clear to you we're not perfect and we're, not, we're not perfect pastors. We confess our sin to one another. It's something very important to us as a team. We, we do it in our, in our small groups too. We're not perfect. But we have to, because God has commanded us to, to be mindful of the sin that's in other people, especially in those who have committed their life to following Jesus Christ, that we got to call it out and say, hey, brother, you don't want to do that, man. That's not what God would have for you. I invite you, turn this direction. Follow, run after the blessing of God in obedience. Don't go this route. Don't go this route. And those aren't fun meetings. Like, I don't like kiss my kids goodbye. Daddy's going to have a good day. I'm going to go find some sinners. Like, I, I, like, that's not what I do. Right? I don't get excited about that. But I know before God, I fear God. That's what my job is to do sometimes, is to go before people and say, don't do this. This is going to ruin your marriage. Don't do it. It's not what God would have for you. He invites you to something so much better. I've got to call you to the mat and say, stop. Stop. Not because I'm perfect. Because this is how this book instructs me to speak to you. So in a loving way, please stop. And I'll tell you, man, there are usually two responses. In, in, in the ministry life that I've had, there's usually two responses. One of the responses 
is to attack the process. Oh, pastor, you shouldn't do it like this, and this, and this should happen, and this person over here, and this person over here, this person over here. You guys aren't doing this right, all this other stuff, right? And you know what I do in those moments? I just go, you know what, man, you're probably right. I'm not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect pastor, so I don't have a perfect process. I get that. But that's not the issue. That's not the issue right now. You're distracted. You're playing the blame game. You're getting all the fingers to point out here. You know what that sounds like? Exactly what Adam did when God called him to the carpet. Exactly what Eve did. Oh, it's not me. It's this and this and this. And we're just going to excuse our behavior. That's not what this crowd did. They didn't say, oh, it's Pilate. Pilate did it. Oh, it's the religious leaders. They did it. What do they say? Man, what should we do? Tell us what to do. I was telling our pastors and our staff, I said, that moment in those meetings is like the sweetest moment that you'll probably get as a pastor. I mean, leading somebody to Jesus Christ, that's a pretty sweet moment. But getting somebody to turn from their sin who's a follower of Jesus Christ, that's a pretty powerful moment. Those moments when they say, Paul, just tell me what to do, man. How do I make it right? How do I make it right? That humility is beautiful. And look how Peter responds. Look what he tells them. They've already admitted. Brothers, what shall we do? Look at verse 38 of Acts chapter 2. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That thing that tore its way out of the temple at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is not going to be in you. Isn't this crazy how they, their crime that they're guilty of is the event that brings them freedom. Isn't that a crazy turn of events? Right? Your felony is your freedom. Now that's bizarre. Talk about a wild turn for them. What a wonderful moment. It lifts them. Yes, it lowered them. It lowered them. I can't imagine what it was like to limit under that guilt for so many days over a month. But then to hear Peter's message, this is what the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was. This is why the sun was darkened. Because judgment was falling on Christ for you. They hear that and say, what must we do? What must we do? Repent and believe. Be baptized. Come follow Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wow, what a day. And this is a perfect model for our posture when we think of the cross. I think we could expand this out that their experience should be our experience. We should be brought low and lifted high. Just to show this to you, Jesus tells a story, a wonderful story, about being brought low and lifted high. In Luke's gospel, Luke records it for us, very interesting. But in Luke chapter 18, look at the story that Jesus Christ tells that really exemplifies to us the humility he wants to see in us. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Verse 11. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I added that a little bit. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven Interesting phrase here, right? But beat his breast. We've seen that posture. Saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And look how God responded to that. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One man went to the temple to impress God. The other man went to the temple to confess to God. Why do we come to church? Why do we gather? We don't gather to impress. We gather to confess. Because we need mercy. We've been humbled by the cross. We see the severity of our sin. We wear that guilt. But then that burden is lifted from us. And mercy is extended to us. And we are brought up from that humble state and we're said, you can be free. You can find forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Maybe some of you come to this church to impress. Let me just tell you right up front, you're going to be very uncomfortable with your experience here at Sunrise. Because the pastoral staff and team, we don't come to impress. Leaders here, we don't come to impress. We've come to realize we come to confess that we are in desperate need of grace. We are hungry for mercy. And we need his righteousness because we are drowning in our sin without him. We are in a drought of holiness without him. But we come here to confess, to be filled up, and he showers his righteousness on us. This is what the mercy of the cross does. It humbles us and it gives us dignity at the same time. It lowers us and it lifts us. So here's my question to you. As you consider this crucifixion, resurrection season, as you consider the cross this week, what do you see? Are you lowered? Are you lifted? Maybe you're disinterested. What I hope you are not, I hope when you look at the cross, you're not impressed with yourself. Because then you're missing it. You are not seeing it. It is meant to humble you and then heal you. In fact, I do not believe that you can see the way of forgiveness until you see the need of forgiveness. I really don't think you're up for the cure and what it costs because there's a cost. You pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ. You confess him as Lord. You make him the boss of your life. You make him authority number one. Why would you want to pay that cost? You want to pay that cost. Why? Because you realize the disease, the despair you're in without him. You're on your own to bear your own sin burden. And that burden will crush you like it crushed the sun. But you won't resolve it. You won't be able to come underneath it. He resolved that. He had victory over it. But the burden of your sin will crush you. And you'll never be lifted from its burden. And I don't want that for you. And God doesn't want that for you. Yes, does he want you lowered? Yes, so you're humbled. So you'll see the way of forgiveness he has for you. The dignity he can speak over your life. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you lower us and you lift us. We thank you that the cross shows us very clearly there is no pretending here. There's no way to gloss over our sin as something minuscule and small. No, in your vision and in your view, our sin is large. It is big. 
It is heavy. It is weighty. It is serious. But it is not something that has sentenced us with no hope. We can be liberated. We can be freed. But the very thing that screams to us the severity of our sin, it says even louder the hope we can find in him. Oh, Father, I thank you that you lift us. Christ, I thank you that you died on the cross for our sins and that you rose again. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you can dwell in us, that there is a sense in which you are unencumbered by sin. You can now live and dwell richly in us. You don't need a temple anymore. You got us. Oh, what a wonderful truth. Father, I pray this season, as we consider the cross, that you would lower us and that you would lift us. Make this a season where we are humbled and yet reassured of our dignity that is in Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.